Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from LCP Delta. I'm John Sloan. And I'm Sandra Trittin. And together we are exploring how the energy transition is unfolding across Europe through conversations with guests from the leading edge of the transition. Hello and welcome to the episode. Today I'm talking with Dave Watson, who's CEO at OMI, an EV charge point manufacturer. Hello, Dave. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And welcome to the episode. Thanks for joining. Dave, not everyone will know OMI, maybe in the not too distant future, most of our listeners will know OMI, but for those that don't, can you give us an elevator pitch for OMI? OMI is a smart charging, uh, it's an EV smart charging platform. And what, what does that mean? It means that we help EV drivers charge at the cheapest time so that we can make uh, charging easy, cheap and reliable for them. And we do that using a combination of our own hardware as well as proprietary software that we've developed. Great. And an idea of scale, I mean, you're, you're talking to us from Ireland, your home market, but how many markets are you active in? Can you give our listeners a feel for how far you've scaled up? Our main market is our main markets are the UK and Ireland. Um, and we're also, we're also pretty advanced in, in, in Belgium and have just launched this year in France, Germany, Spain and Australia. Give me an idea. I guess that's a geo- geogra- geographical scale. You've been quite busy with new market launches then. Yeah, so this year, so 2023, yeah, 2023 or late 2023 was, was the year of uh, new market launches. And, and to give you then an idea, of, I mean, some of the partners that we have in the UK, to give you an idea of some of the scale in them. We, our biggest partner, which I guess many of your listeners wouldn't have heard of, is, is, is called Motability. They manage uh, our lease vehicles on behalf of these disabled uh, vehicles, uh, disabled drivers here in the UK. They, they lease about 750,000 vehicles and they're looking to move aggressively into electric vehicles and their target is to have uh, 130,000 uh, electric drivers on the road in the next 18 months and we're their uh, exclusive uh, charging partner. So you're scaling up pretty fast then. Yeah, exactly. I'm intrigued by how you described your company as software and hardware. Can you tell us a bit about what your original vision was for OMI and that combination or balance between the hardware, the charge point, and then the software charging platform behind it? Yeah, yeah, no problem. I guess I can go all the way back into how we solved it or started or why, why I started, I think. It was around 2018 when I started to look at large batteries or containerized batteries as a way of, of, of balancing the grid. And as I looked closer at those, I could see the batteries were, battery prices were, were decreasing pretty much around the, around the same rate or something similar to what had happened in solar. So to kind of put it in perspective, the battery of, uh, let's say, a Tesla Model X would have been about 100,000 in 2012, but it already dropped to something that like 25, 20, 25,000 in, in 2018. And I guess I had just did the calcs and, and thought, well, actually that battery would be something by, by 22, 2023 would be closer to seven or 8,000. And so at that price, I felt that EVs would be the mass form of transport much quicker than people realized. Also I thought that cars are parked 95% of the time and working home. And so I thought, well, we could use that battery that existed in those EVs to balance the grid. Why build other batteries when there's going to be batteries in EVs? Exactly. And, and I also, you know, you, you look at a lot of people started to think about destination charging and you realize actually most journeys are under 25 miles. And the line share of them. And as I said, most cars spent most of the time parked. Now, that's not every use case and everybody doesn't have off street, but I just thought that seemed like a, a really great fit. So we... Started or I started to think about how I could build a business to effectively capitalize on that transition. So we 
first thing we did is we invented, I guess, the idea of a, of a, of a smart cable or a charging cable where we had a 4G SIM in a cable and that cable could connect to any car. Yeah. And well, at that stage, sorry, that cable could charge any car in any country as long as it had 4G and you could plug it in. The connectivity then would be in the cable, not in the car, not in the charge point, but exactly. in the cable. Yep. And then as, a, as effect of the initial transition, we thought, well, ultimately the the connectivity could move to the car. So we built some technology or software technology to allow us to manage and control it from the car. And we thought, oh, well, it could end up in the house. And we built some software to control and manage other people's charges because we wanted or so. And so we, we felt we had a a technology approach, uh, sorry, a, 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 exactly, a technology agnostic approach to the market. And we could push with a, what we believed was a piece of transitionary hardware, which was this cable and a whole software platform that would allow us to, control and manage the grid and fortunately for us we bumped up bumped into greg at octopus when they were when they were quite small and they started to bring out some interesting time of use tariffs and go and, and, and agile and in particular when it, and when energy prices went negative drivers were paid to charge and we moved quite a bit of load around however as we started to try to drive the software piece of the business we ran into some difficulties because uh Quality of a lot of the hardware out there was quite poor, so trying to control and manage them and provide a reliable smart charging service with unreliable hardware is wasn't really sustainable. And some of the larger hardware manufacturers are larger at that stage. They were larger, believed that they were going to build their own software. So we were, we as a business had to make the decision to start building and, and, and developing our own hardware as an ability to effectively build and drive our our own connected platform. So that was effectively the transition or the pivot to. A, a business that began to lead more with hardware. However, as we start, and I guess this will lead into, in, into your next question, John, as we started to manage that proposition and started to realize, you know, that when we started selling the hardware, we realized the software needs became more complicated. And, and that was when tariffs started to evolve. And we can talk about the evolution of, of, of the energy markets, but also when we think about how do we provide software solutions to our route to market partners or our, our B2B partners? They needed other problems solved, which weren't just moving moving load around. So I guess it's a combination of that hardware piece that gave us reliability in terms of performance and a, and a route to market, but the software part of the business, which allows us to create a, I guess, a service overlay, whether that's on, on, the, on the grid side or even with, with B2B partners, is, is, is a, I guess, the second string to our, our ball. Okay, so in your company at the moment, then you're a mix of hardware, either manufacturing or assembling kit, and having to scale through manufacturing plant, and also software engineers developing those software services you described. So yeah, I think about a quarter of our, our workforce is is involved in in the software you know, the development as well as the engineering part. So it's quite a, a large proportion of our, I guess, of our of our business for something that on the face of it looks quite hardware focused. Interesting. And what about scaling? I mean, as you're growing quickly, as you described at the beginning, tell us a bit about the challenges in scaling both the hardware side and the software side, and then maybe any reflections on scaling the company as a whole in terms of the rate of growth of the EV market and the rate of growth that I'm sure you're looking to achieve in the next years. So so on the face of it, I mean, they're, they're, they're two quite different scaling models, the software and the hardware business. The software scaling is relatively easy if one just thinks about the number of users. So you create an event-driven platform where your compute and all the processes you have scale effectively automatically with the number of users and drivers. So that means there's not large amounts of investment up front and actually you can just generally scale those processes quite easily and cheaply. The difficulty with the software part of the business is 
is the complexity of the products that you want to build and need to build in order to remain competitive end up being you know more and more complicated and you have lots of complicated edge cases that you need to go to build around so when you know at the start of the business you go I've early adopters are happy with to manage their way through edge cases you now have early majority and they have zero tolerance they wanted to be yeah. like Netflix or Google so ultimately the software product you need to build has to be much more robust and work for larger sets of users and then on the other side the products that you need to build scales as well so you need different teams doing different things and then sorry the last complexity is is technical debt so you make some decisions early day when you don't know exactly what you're going to build and then you realize that with the benefit of hindsight, you might have built them differently. So they're kind of different challenges on a software business. I mean, they're, they're kind of reasonably well known. And then on the hardware side, the challenges are quite different in a different way because actually for each installation, you know, if a business triples in a year and, and then triples the year after, that's effectively 10 times growth in two years. And that results in 10 times more stuff happening in the real world. So you have 10 times more boxes built, 10 by boxes moved, 10 times the more installations to complete. So there's 10 times more of everything in the physical world, which, you know, when you need to get labor and bodies and move and, and the logistics of that and the capital requirements of actually doing that are quite different to a software business. So yeah. both the aspects of the business have different complexities and, and different things to manage. Anything that you look back in the last couple of years and you're most proud about or anything that you look back and you thought, oh, that was actually a lot harder than I thought it would be? I think everything is harder than you think. <laughs> Nothing's easier, is it? I think that's the, one of the things that I guess to be entrepreneurial, you have to be reasonably optimistic that things are easier and then you get stuck into it and actually you finish and you enjoy it. I think that's, that's that optimism is, is helpful. So things are generally harder. However, when things do start to change and you get some momentum, I guess sometimes you get positive feedback loops that then make other aspects easier. So I think starting is always difficult. Getting the momentum yeah. is quite difficult. And getting people to understand that solutions are better than existing solutions is, is, is quite tricky. Again, the thing I guess I'm most proud of or coming back to is realizing that actually solving problems for other big B2B partners and helping make their life easier is a way to provide solutions to larger number of customers. So it's actually really focusing on those partners and figuring out what problems they really do, I think is the thing that I'm, and trying to help solve them is the thing that I guess we're most proud of. Yeah, okay. And you've got your partnership, you mentioned with Motability, with Volkswagen, with others. Has that taken time to, I guess, form part of your team's culture, that solving problems for your partners? It's clearly something that you're doing well, you've got good partner routes to market. Is that part of your DNA and your culture, or is it taking a lot of work to achieve that? Or as most startups, I guess you it was a bit of trial and error. You you build a product and you think everybody should love it, and you know you start pitching and and you say you you try to persuade them that your product's better. And actually, after a while, you begin to think it's it's actually better to learn and listen to them. So you know a lot of startups are they they just keep you know they get keep getting knockbacks, and they think if I just build another feature or I just or I just keep blowing on, it works and more. What we started to do was listen and try and figure out what problems did our partners have today. Because we were kind of, I guess if you turn around, we were trying to sell benefits that didn't really exist or benefits that might exist in the future. Yet most of our partners had problems with the transition today. Yeah, they had things yeah. that they needed help with. So when we started to listen to what they needed and respond to their needs as opposed to what we were selling, I think that was the fundamental shift in mindset of the business. And I think... Culture is a funny thing. If you if you learn that when you're reasonably small 
and a small group of people and everybody new who comes into the group sees that's how you do it, how you approach your customers and approach situations to know it kind of, I guess, happens organically within within the business and people go and talk to our customers or our partners and listen to them and see how they solve their problems. No, I, I mean, that doesn't mean, I guess, we solve all the problems perfectly today. Yeah, yeah. We have only finite resources and there's always people unhappy that we're not moving fast enough for solving as many problems from, from them. Yeah. So what we try to do is at this stage is try and, try and solve as many as we can as, as quickly as we can and, and, and then move on to the next. So for any drivers or anybody who's sitting there and saying we're not solving their problems today, we'll... You can't solve them all at once. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll do our best to get to them. And you talked about the problem that starting OMI, that need for grid flexibility and looking at big batteries originally, and then, well, we'll have all these batteries on wheels that are plugged in most of the time. When I look at markets for flexibility, they're opening up more and more. They're still taking time, so we still can't get the full value from flexibility from electric vehicles or other forms of residential flexibility. In terms of the timing of when that will come and thinking about what you just said of focusing on the problems your customers have today, how quickly are your customers interested in and asking about and thirsty for those smart charging solutions? Well, I guess I'd answer the, the first, I mean, I, it, rather than answering the last question, I'll answer another question first. I think the regulated markets around flexibility and, and, and uh, the, you know, the ones that divide, designed by the DNOs and the TSOs are ultimately taking their time because they have yeah. various needs. But on the supplier side, the purchase of the commodity piece, so buying energy at the cheapest price is, you know, when you've gone from small numbers of EVs, that doesn't have a big impact, but larger numbers of EVs, it makes a big difference that EVs are charging at the right period of time. Yeah. And then also the important part is to understand how much they're charging, so the quantities to help the suppliers effectively manage their imbalance position. So by helping to solve those two problems, which is timing and imbalance on a more dynamic basis, what you're doing is creating an ability to effectively pass on the cheapest energy to the customers before you get to those regulated parts that you're, you're saying. So what, what does that really mean? You know, you go from a go to an agile to something now like intelligent. And intelligent is in that intelligent octopus or even overdrive anytime are in that category that in order to access the cheapest energy, the supplier has to benefit from being able to buy the energy on a cheaper basis, at a more on a more dynamic basis, so rather than just once a day, but more frequently, and then and then be able to manage their imbalance position. So that then is, is in a position where now lots of drivers can, and, and and because of that, the difference between those types of tariffs and standard variable or even day and night is much bigger. So that makes the the first stage of the of, of the journey, which is I guess the non-regulated piece, easier because you can start to then talk to customers and not just early adopters, all customers about how they can access cheaper energy through these tariffs. But these tariffs are the first form of real flexibility. You know, Go and Agile really aren't. They're just responsive to price, whereas Intelligent, Anytime, and some of the newer ones that come out are, are the first version of flexibility. So by taking customers on that journey, they have to engage with energy, they have to engage in, you know, terms of use so they have to you know give place the control of the of, of, of the charger to us or the supplier or, or both via via that structure and then they move to the first form of flexible energy. The second form which is more supplier and DNO led which is slower stuff. Yeah that take take time. Time. but yeah. we are currently working on quite a large oh, we have a large trial or in or, or a DNO or sorry the TSO driven trial with Octopus Ovo and a, and a few of the DNOs it's called CrowdFlex. Mm. And the whole purpose of that is to run a series of at scale tests 
to give the, the system operator confidence that actually the services that they will draw on are reliable. You know, they want to understand the size of it, but understand the reliability of it. Why is reliability and confidence in dispatch important for them? Because if they look for that flexibility, either turn up and turn down and it's not there, then ultimately the system isn't balanced. And the impact of that not happening, or sorry, not being balanced is quite catastrophic. They're cautious, as you said, they want to be sure yeah. that they can rely on that service. So I think we're, we're in the middle of the first phase, which is, I think, where there's large benefits for our customers in the first phase and the second one, which will unlock the next phase of benefits to drivers and end customers is, is, is a bit slower. Yeah, and we're certainly seeing the number of dynamic tariffs or type of use tariffs really starting to grow quickly in some markets. So yeah. for customers, there's such an obvious use case to charge smartly using those tariffs. I think what we'll see going forward is some customers will want to be on dynamic tariffs. Other customers won't like the risk of it and will prefer a flat tariff. But then the energy retailer can move load about and share some of that benefit with a customer through the structure of the flat tariff. I think in the next years, my view is it will vary slightly country to country, depending on the regulations, the market structure. But if you don't harness the flexibility of electric vehicles as an energy retailer, you'll be out of the market because you won't be able to compete. That's definitely the case in the UK. You can see that already between, you know, that the octopus and a few more definitely led the way in, in that. And, and, and all the other suppliers are, are actually having to respond or they will, as you said, be out of the market. We are seeing early, early signs of more dynamic tariffs in, in, the, in the Benelux region, and that's driven by price volatility there and, and the opportunity to, to manage that. And the companies in the UK, again, like Octopus and Over, are expanding into Europe and expanding quite quickly. And that's driving change as well as I think the the proliferation of rooftop solar. It's there's been massive growth in twenty three across Europe and and the same twenty four. So that will create more effectively supply demand volatility, which which will ultimately lead in the which increases the benefit of of moving load around and and the, and the value in time of use or type of use tariffs. So I agree one hundred percent with you, John. And to do that, you'll need to be able to communicate and you'll need good enough stable technology to manage that. Or you need that combination of software and hardware, in your case, packaged in one company to be able to do that. David, you've got a couple of other hats that you wear. You're chief investment officer of an investment business, I think, as well. And also, they've got a completely different hat with an orchard and producing cider in your home in Ireland. I wanted to ask you briefly, what's it like wearing three hats and do they actually complement each other? So are you, from your different experiences, does that help you in your business running OMI? So, so the investment hat is while I was running that business, effectively gave me the insights to come up with the, I guess, the idea for OMI. And then, you know, the connectivity that I had generated within the energy ecosystem was, was very helpful. Then when, when we launched our very first version of technology, we already knew some of the energy players and the people in the energy ecosystem. So, so that was very much, very much complementary and on, the, on the early days. Now, looking at larger grid-connected assets and strategies around that and understanding the energy play kind of gives some insights into where energy may go on the distributed side. And then some of the things... And the disruption that's happening on the distributed side informs how the investment business approaches some of the the infrastructure projects. You know, because if if you, you if you can see distributed assets may disrupt the energy markets, then you need to have that. You need to be thinking about that when you're making longer term infrastructure investments. So there are 
there's some synergies over and back on both. So for me, they they look different, but they actually provide just two different viewpoints of something that's you know very similar. The whole energy market is ultimately connected. Yeah, it's getting yeah. more distributed, but they're connected. And they're all energy flows, and and the different types of assets provide different but similar services to the grid, and they impact each other. So so I think they're the both those are, are extremely complementary. I mean, the cider business is is a little bit more tenuous. That grew out of a passion, <laughs> grew out from, out of a passion for growing growing trees, and I have always loved growing trees. I mean, mostly planted loads of oak woods, tens of thousands of trees at this stage. And when I bought some land in Ireland, I just wanted to start to grow some apple trees or a cider apple trees with my dad, and and then started making make, making cider with my family, my dad, my cousin, and that kind of grew a life of its own. Now, from a personal base, it's a great relaxer. I just go out and spend all the time with my family and friends and, and, and we get involved and do that. From a business perspective, that was the first insight I had on a consumer, you know, consumer business. So trying to figure out how you increase your profile and, and do that. Because in the investment business, it's all B2B and large scale. So it's relatively yeah, okay. okay and you don't get to know it. So we had to, to build a brand with a relatively meager buzz budget for the drinks business or designer business. And so kind of messed figured out about social media and influencers and some trial and error on that taught me how to, I guess, make the most of relatively limited marketing resources. So in the very early days with Omi, we got to know some of the the people who were very much interested in new tech and had already had large numbers of followers and stuff and, and really engaged them. And, and, and they helped to elevate Omi's brand and awareness on the early days. So I guess... That's how I could say that some of the things that I've learned on uh, our drinks business helped on on the Omi side. I'm not sure what how Omi or or, or, or Tim Boris are helping. Around the side. <laughs> my wife, well, my wife, my wife, my wife, and 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 cousin would argue that that Omi's taking all my focus. So it's 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 actually uh, it's it, it's not helpful anymore. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a it's a great family thing, and it's where loads of my passion is. It's interesting you hearing you talk about the. B to C and the B to B part, because I think in the energy sector, there's lots of people who might look at the problems in balancing the grid, big batteries, batteries on wheels, and how the energy system can become more densely centralized, more customer centric. But I'm finding it's less common for people to bring real customer centric thinking, entrepreneurialism, passion around customers to the energy transition. Seeing it more and more, but that blend you have of, I guess, at a small scale, you're beside a business and having to think entrepreneurially about how you reach customers, brand, you know, what you're doing at OMI actually is a really good compliment. I hadn't really thought about it like that, but actually it makes a lot of sense. I mean, for me, I think that was one of the arguments or discussions I used to have with people from the energy industry at the start. They always thought that they always viewed customers as smaller versions of the existing assets they already had. And they thought that the flexibility was something theoretical that you'd turn on and off. And I always felt that actually flexibility is a thing you get after you've made sure the customers get exactly what they want. And what they want is, is they want to one, be sure that the car is charged in the morning when they go out there. And two is they want the cheapest energy as, as convenient as possible. So you have to solve those first three problems first before you get flexibility. Because if you don't solve those problems, then you lose trust. You lose customers' trust and their, their trust in the system. And if you do that, then there is no flexibility. It doesn't, it doesn't exist because they would rather pay more to be sure that things happen. To get what they want. Yeah. To get what yeah. they want. So ultimately, yeah. in order to get what the grid wants, they need trust. 
And so, and, and the other thing that I did is a customer, I thought believed is if a customer plugs in once a week and gets all the charge, that's not much flexibility. What you want to do is encourage a customer to plug in every day. So why would they do that? Well, they'll only do it if, if they realize it's, it's beneficial and they trust them. So, so I guess they were beliefs that I had at the first day and the things that we, and, and I guess if you look around the biggest brands and the biggest com- companies in the world and all the newest biggest companies are all driven by companies that have a customer obsession, obsession with exactly. trying to make sure of customer outcomes and, and then the rest of the business seemed to look after itself. So I noticed that and then did more and more digging and then realized actually the true way or what was my belief that if you become customer obsessed in every level, whether they're individual customers or B2B customer, that was the ultimately the formula to, to build the biggest business and not be obsessed about the product, not be obsessed. I mean, you have to be product obsessed second, but... And, and not just obsessed about the outcome you deliver, which is, oh, yes, we get to balance the grid. It's not great. It's, it's start first at the customer and say, how do, we, how do we just make their life better and easier? Yeah. And everything else flows from that. Exactly. Everything has to be built around that customer experience. Because if you don't get that right and you don't build that trust and that empathy, then it's very difficult to get anything else coming from that. That was the belief. And that's what we're trying to do. I think we, we, we don't get it right all the time, but we're, we're doing our best to, to try and be better and better at it every day. And I, it's an iterative thing, and I, I think that helps because you know we, we are in the beginning of a transition, and it is going to continue to change. The services are going to change, what people want are going to change, the technology is going to change, and I think it's that mindset of customer obsession and continuous improvement is, as I think, is what is required in order to actually unlock the potential that exists, which is a, a, a distributed, connected grid. Yeah, you know, at, at the end state and the concept of what it can create and do is absolutely phenomenal. It it is unlocking the you know the value of the billions and billions of infrastructure that's already dominant in the ground. Just to unlock that is is it's it's money for nothing for a system if you work like that. Then yeah. EV uh, energy, uh, you know your solar and wind provide the cheapest energy you can you can imagine in the in the world, but they're they're not predictable and non dispatchable. So. You know that connected and 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 that flexibility. If you can if you can capture it, also unlocks that. And you put a bit of distributed batteries into the system, and all of a sudden we have an amazing system. But it has to start with making it easy and reliable for the customer. Dave, let's bring up the talking new energy crystal ball now, and I'm going to set the dial this week to 2030. And I think it might only be six years away, but let's hope in many markets electric vehicles will be the norm amongst new car sales. And we'll have moved very much from the innovators and early adopters into the mass market. Can you tell us a bit about your vision? And I'll let you choose either for OMI or EV charging at home in 2030. And just give us a, a little view from the future in 2030 of either EV charging at home or, or OMI in that year. Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll talk a bit more about EV charging at home. I think it's easier as to what that looks like. And I'll break that down into, I guess whether you're you know, the, the mass market or, or early adopters, I think. For the mass market, I can see a much more engaged customer that is going to be charging for very cheap, if not free and negative at large numbers of periods of time. And, and that's even before we get to the V2G, even with simple smart charging. And the reason is, is they will be able to, by providing their flexibility, they will be able to, one, unlock the cheapest energy, which is an extension of where we are now, but even be able to provide reliable flexibility to the grid operators and that will unlock another pool of, of benefit to the customers it to unlock that at scale while it doesn't seem like you know at home it doesn't seem like much changes but it'll actually fundamentally change the design of the energy system and the money available to customers so so cheap reliable 
charging where the control is implicitly passed, the control of the, the devices based on trust is passed over to, to somebody else, I think will be pretty ubiquitous at that because we'll already have very many millions of connected vehicles. And if we can get all those connected vehicles engaged, that is a huge amount of flexibility and value to the system. So that's that's at home. For some of the more, I would say, early adopters of the cutting edge guys, they're going to be you know running the very early stages of, of a fully I guess, connected prosumer where we have elements of B2G, whether that's, and that could quite likely be AC at that, so the beginning of that, plus uh, home battery, solar, and really connected and will be actually positively in a meaningfully way get positive returns for themselves to do it. So they're, they really are a prosumer into the new energy system. So they're not just getting charging for very low cost or zero, they're getting more than that because of... Yeah, they're generating money from their assets, which ultimately are or their car, battery, and, and solar panels, and the whole thing is connected, and, and they're much more dynamic. But I don't believe by 2030 that they will exist in, in huge numbers because actually there's lots of regulatory and behavioral and software barriers to pass through to make that happen at scale. But, you know, you'll have reasonably decent numbers of those customers or those types of people, I guess, paving the way for the, for the larger number of people to follow afterwards. So that's, that's kind of what 2030 looks like. Maybe those early adopters, what you described there, that's the wave that we'll see in the 2030s then as that starts to move to the, the more mainstream markets. Yeah, um, I think it'll happen quite quickly, but just in four years' time. It's not yeah, long to go, is it? It's not long to go. And, 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 and the reality is for a lot of the stuff that I talked about, there's regulatory changes need to happen yeah. for that to happen at scale. Yeah. So the regulatory changes that are required for the first, for what I talked about, the, the real connected you know, mass market people participating in flexibility and unlocking that first tranche of, of value to make super cheap charging a thing for pretty much everyone who has got, who can charge at home. I think that that can be done in four years, but you know, the real, I guess what the prosumer, I don't know if prosumer is the right word, but the real connected person is generating huge, large, large amounts of money from their assets needs. You know, they need, there needs to be software, there needs to be hardware development, software development, regulatory development and market development. Quite a few things to get right, isn't it? Yeah, across multiple brands and multiple things. There's lots of things for yeah. that to be a scale. scale. So yeah. there will be people probably listening to this and always also already saying, I'm doing a version of that now because I'm using my home assistant and locking, you know, connecting up a number of different apps and pieces of hardware in order to maximize their own return. But to turn it into a real mass market consumer proposition where average everyday people who are not technologically engaged can actually participate in that will will take a little bit longer. Yeah. But the first the first step, you know, the simple one, the mass adoption of people engaged with the current dynamic tariffs and, and indirectly participating in Flex will unlock. It's going to be a game changer for the system that even if we do get I think getting there at by twenty thirty is is something most people wouldn't have imagined was possible. Well certainly the energy system wouldn't have imagined was possible four or five years ago. Well, there's some great quotes about the rate inflection points or the, the hockey stick moment in a curve. It always takes longer to get to that hockey stick moment than people thought. But when it happens, it always happens more quickly than people thought it would happen. And I think we're, we're right in that hockey stick moment of We're, we're definitely on it anyway. This, to my mind, we're definitely on it and, and we're on the king. So the, I mean, the, the change each year is phenomenal and it's accelerating, yeah. I think. Yeah. Exciting. Well, an exciting place for, for you and Omi to be, Dave. Thanks very much for your time and sharing your thoughts and experiences with us today. Thanks, really John. enjoyed the conversation. And best of luck in the next years as you continue to scale and grow. 
Thanks to everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and look forward to welcoming you back next week. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. We are excited to bring you captivating conversations from the leading edge of Europe's energy transitions. If you've got suggestions for topics or guests for future episodes, please let us know. And if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do rate it and share it with colleagues. For show notes, transcripts and more, please visit lcpdelta.com.